0: In this, uh, this time leading up to uh, God's Word uh, this past week, He has blessed me by shredding me up inside. Breaking me down. And picking up the pieces to make me whole. God's Word is living and active. And my prayer this morning is we open it. I, I'm sorry, I don't have any cool like illustration to open with. My wife did. She came up with this good thing, but I just didn't think it fit because we're going to dive right into the text of Scripture. She had this Lion King thing going. I was like, whoa! I'm just, I'm sorry. <laughs> she, she should come up and present that is what that should be. But in preparation for this, my prayer is that God's Word this morning might encourage and might challenge us in the way it did for me Um, in my preparation for it. We're going to be in the book of Luke as we continue our study in our series. Um, Luke's approach to uh, telling us all about Jesus Christ and the good news that he brings. And we end with chapter 3, which is this long genealogy, a list of names, this long generational list. Just look at that thing. A lot of people there, eh? You guys see what I'm seeing in chapter 3? We see Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. He's being the son of Joseph, the son of 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 the son right? And it goes on and on and on, all the way down in generations dating all the way back to them, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. We go back to Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. We turn all the way back there. Don't do that with me now. I'm just going to sum it up for us. But in Genesis, we have the first man and woman, and their names are... You guys are so smart. Okay, So they're in paradise. They're in this garden called... Very good. You guys are awesome. Okay, So they're in this garden called Eden. It's paradise, this lush, beautiful garden. Everything is perfect. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, enters this... Serpent, and the serpent is there to tempt them, tempts them, tempts the first humans to distrust God's word, to not take his word seriously, to put seeds of doubt in their minds. Did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Did God really say, I mean, he knows that you eat of it, you're just going to be more like him. So it enters the serpent to tempt them. And so the first Adam, a son of God, was tempted by Satan and he failed. Adam did not trust God. He disobeyed God. He distrusted God. And this morning in our passage, we have the second Adam, the son of God, tempted by satan having no sin in him conquers and wins through his trust in god his faithfulness to god y'all jesus trusts god join with me in chapter 4 we're going to be taking the text 1 through 13 here this morning chapter 4 verse 1 and jesus it begins, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus going out full of the Holy Spirit. What had just happened in his life to make him full of the Holy Spirit, everybody? He got baptized by the baptizer, right? John, his cousin, dunked him in the water. The Spirit descended upon him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And then he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus here is being prepared for ministry. This is all leading up to an intense three years of constant good news telling, healings, feedings, raisings, mentorings. Jesus is being prepared for the ministry. And we saw Jesus a couple weeks ago as a 12-year-old boy in his preparation. At the temple, learning and just longing for all the things that there are to be about God. And then being baptized by his cousin John in his late 20s. And now he's going out into the wilderness to be tested. All in preparation for his mission and his call. But before we dive into it all, it's, it's very, very important to draw our attention to the person of Jesus. Jesus. Because if you've read through this story, or maybe you've heard it in a Sunday school class when you were like this tall, you're like, yeah, I remember the temptation of Jesus. We need to have this understanding of His time in the wilderness. Hebrews 2, uh, verse 17 says, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. Why is this important? Because Jesus wasn't just god jesus wasn't just man he was god man jesus was body and soul and mind human okay it wasn't like he was just out there in the body of god and he was just getting all these like god thoughts that were like oh no this is the three temptations it's not it's not gonna be a big deal you'll get through it there's something else beyond there it's gonna be great okay you got this god brain no 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 he's got human brain where it's present right right His entire life, he lives humanly. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, so that he could relate to you and to me to help you and me when we are faced with temptations. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. This is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation is very important. As we continue our study ahead this morning, Jesus humbled himself from God into human flesh, being fully God, fully man, a hypostatic union. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, declaring later in his ministry in John chapter 8, I do nothing out of my own authority, but only that of the Father's. He lived submissively, the Son of God, the Messiah. This is the incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus was faithful to the Father throughout His ministry and especially in preparation for His ministry. He submitted Himself to the Father by obeying the Holy Spirit, which is where we found ourselves. He was full of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, returning from the Jordan and was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Jesus wasn't just told, okay, you're on your own. Get on out there for a long time. Best of luck to you. Oh, here's some water. Right? Jesus wasn't told to go into the wilderness solo and survive. He was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Holy Helper, by the sustaining Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This wilderness trip was an essential piece in his ministry prep. And he was with God the whole time, fasting, fasting, and praying this was a journey for jesus's human growth and as we've discovered with growth church family comes suffering hardships and jesus's example of that here this texas morning is beautiful so we have the setting here jesus is entering the wilderness this is the judean wilderness in israel He was led into this dry and desolate place near the Dead Sea where there's not like a lot of great fresh water options around. Historically, it's a place where people would go to not be found. Historically, it's a place to get away. We know in the Old Testament that King David wandered into the Judean wilderness to escape King Saul's murderous hunt, to end him. It's a truly uninhabited, desert-like place. And we see this huge contrast here with where Jesus is in the wilderness. In Jesus' temptation, the location from the first Adam's temptation, which was in the Garden of Eden, this lush paradise that was beautiful and plentiful, everything they possibly needed, compared to the second Adam's temptation in this desolate, dry Judean wilderness. And then there's another Old Testament wilderness reference that plays a large role throughout the text this morning, especially in Jesus' response to temptation, to the devil's temptation. It's the length of time that Jesus was out there. What's the text say? How long was He out there? Forty days. Forty is a significant number. A very significant number to especially the Israelites. Because for how many years were they wandering the wilderness? Nice. You guys are brilliant. Into the wilderness they wandered for 40 years before they could enter the promised land. We find the story in the book of Exodus where God had just delivered his people, the Israelites, from the enslaving hands of Egypt. They'd crossed the Red Sea, which was incredible, and they set up camp and they stayed when God told them to stay and they picked up camp and left when God told them to go. They were being obedient to God, kind of. He gave them food to eat. He gave them water to drink. And we will revisit this throughout the text this morning, often as Jesus does throughout his temptation. The text in Luke says that Jesus ate nothing for those days and at the end he was hungry. Yep. I would imagine so. Like six weeks hungry, right? Forty days without eating food. I mean, your body, you physically start to change, right? Your eyes start to sink in, your cheeks sink in, your, your like, organs are like, nope, we're going to shut down, okay? Your stomach is just in knots, and you have these hunger pangs that are just incredible. And you feel like you're dying. And this is where Jesus is at at the end of his 40 days in the wilderness when Satan walks into the picture. Coming at Jesus with a three-staged attack. And Jesus' response is that God the Father is faithful and cares for His Son in the wilderness. The same as He was with the wandering Israelites in the wilderness. And as we will land this morning, the same is unto you and to me in our wilderness. If... We will allow him to be faithful and caring. And so we jump into the first temptation. Satan enters in in verse 3. Follow along with your eyeballs here in the text. The devil then said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So since you're the Son of God, okay, Jesus, and there's no doubt that you are incredibly hungry right now. Right? Okay, so why don't you just take care of yourself and turn that rock into this piping hot loaf of bread? Wouldn't that be amazing right now? I mean, you're starving. I can see it on your face. This seems like an innocent temptation. It's not a sin to make bread. In fact, it's a blessing. Am I right? Oh, man. It's not a sin to make bread. Especially if you have the means to, like Jesus had the means to. Satan's saying, dude, just meet your own needs with your own power. This isn't a temptation to solve a hunger problem. This is a temptation towards independence away from the Father. Independence away from the Father, controlling his own outcome with his God power. Putting aside, or putting his needs rather, above all else, to the point of stepping outside of his humanity, engaging in his deity apart from the Father to, kaboom, make that bread. Jesus' response is powerful. No doubt the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy's accounts of the deliverance of God's people to the promised land through the wilderness was was never or was always present on his mind. When he was 12, he'd studied under these teachers, and he would look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and go, man, these guys, they really wandered. 40 years, that's incredible. And now he's 40 days in the wilderness. There's no doubt in his mind that Israel is present. For it had been that Israel was hungry in the wilderness, and they whined to God, saying that it was better in Egypt when we had the stew, when we were enslaved, than to be here in the wilderness and hungry. So God, patient and loving, met their desires for food and he supplied it for them for the entirety of their 40-year wandering. Jesus, believing that God could and would provide for his own, goes on to quote Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone. The rest of the verse, though, is the kicker in Deuteronomy. But man lives By every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is saying that I know my God will sustain me and provide for me in His timing. His timing. I don't need to circumvent that promise. I don't need to provide my own food here, nor do I need to whine like the Israelites did when they were hungry. Jesus is saying, I live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Now, for us today, this temptation, I mean, we can't really relate to, I, I cannot turn a rock into bread. Anybody here? Rock bread people? Nobody? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> there are some great bread makers out here, but not rocks to bread, okay? So, but what does apply to me, is the fact that instead of trusting God to provide all things, I go beyond him, around him, to take care of myself, my family. Kent Hughes, commentator, he says it this way, we are too often overreachers. We promote ourselves because we are sure that God will not do it. We scheme and we plan for our well-being assuming that God doesn't care or maybe doesn't know our needs. We refuse to live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Later in Jesus' ministry though, he would say it this way, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who is taking care of you, church family? Is it you? Did you step into that role? Are you letting God do that? Y'all, we have such a loving and kind and generous Father. God who loves caringly for you and for me his love is so incredible and so deep that he wants to show you that love will we let him will you let him Pastor Derek said it really well last week turn away from King's self and turn towards King Jesus turn away from King's self and turn towards King Jesus and that's just been eating at me (laughs) Who's taking care of you? We get to now Jesus' second temptation in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. This is an invitation from Satan to worship him, to worship Satan, to fall on your face for the fallen one and abandon his loyalty to the Father. Satan gives Jesus this vision of the world before him. And it's all kingdoms, all powers. And he offers him a ministry win without the pain and the suffering. Satan's offering Jesus a ministry win without all the pain and suffering. No betrayals, no beatings, no crucifixion. Just a win. You got all the people. You got the power. You just have to bow to me. This temptation is a quick... And easy access to power. Satan was offering it all up and Jesus knew that Satan could offer these things. Because in John's Gospel account of Christ's life and mission, he records three times Jesus saying and referring to Satan as the ruler of the world. Satan is the ruler of the world. Satan really could offer Jesus the loyalty of these kingdoms. The What we know is limited power of the world. Just bowed down before me. That's all. Commentator writes in this way the temptation was to take the easy way to kingship apart from God's will, to be a shortcut savior, a shallow, fleeting political salvation instead of an eternal soul salvation. There'd be no atonement, no real forgiveness, no righteousness. The temptation before Jesus was to receive the crown without the cross. But then Jesus' response again, home run. Through the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, where Moses is warning the Israelites about idolatry. It says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This quote comes in Deuteronomy following the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your... Guys are so smart. You shall worship the Lord your God and only Him shall you serve. Jesus refuses to engage in idolatry. To engage in the easy way out. He refuses to take the path of least resistance. He refuses. And this is by no means an easy temptation to overcome for Jesus. Because okay, what's at stake? The Messiah was to face torture and death to win over the kingdom for us, to bring us righteousness, to give us true forgiveness, to save our souls. The cost was great. This temptation was hard. The application for us today is clear. And it hits hard. We live and we thrive in a culture that avoids pain, that promotes taking the easy way taking that path of least resistance. We're told in 2 Timothy 3:12 that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. As believers we are not called to an easy life. We're called to pick up our cross daily and follow after him. Anything other than that is idolatry. Worshipping the comfortable. So following Christ includes suffering. And speaking of suffering, there's a third temptation, as if two wasn't enough, right? And so in verse uh, 9, we pick back up with Satan's dialogue with Jesus. And it says, Then he took him to Jerusalem. Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The temptation, much like the second one, was most likely a vision experience. Not actually standing on the temple probably would have scared a lot of people around. Okay? But a vision like experience where Satan and Jesus were standing high upon the southeastern corner of the temple roof, which looked over the Kidron Valley and down 450 vertical feet. Jerusalem was way up. The temple was way, way more up. The rooftop to the valley floor, 450 feet, the hot day upon them, and the wind blowing. I would imagine, I I don't know about you guys, I I hate heights. you stand at the edge and you're just like, nope. Okay. And so to be there and to be just completely dizzy by the sheer visual of the depth of your potential doom, right? (laughs) I'm not a fan of unstable heights. Wouldn't do good up there. But Jesus and Satan, they're standing there on the edge. To jump from a height and to survive would be nothing less than a divine intervention. The crowds would gather around to watch this epic Jesus show. There would no doubt they would turn from their ways to follow him. Every Jew, every Pharisee, every religious leader would go, ah, the Messiah at last. All would be at peace. That is the temptation before Jesus here. Yet again, Jesus responds in his understanding that the father hasn't given him this instruction to go and be this incredible illusionist dude that just makes things happen crazily. That wasn't the way he was going to begin his ministry. Jesus again did nothing out of his own power against the power of his father. Jesus did not do anything outside of the father's authority. If he did that, that would test God. He quotes from Deuteronomy a third time. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. We know in Israel's wandering in the wilderness, Israel tests God in the wilderness, wondering if he's really there, wondering if he's going to provide this test that uh, comes right after God, provides for them water from Moses like hitting a rock, right? And then they go, oh man, is God even really there? Is God really even going to provide for me? They doubt His faithfulness. And it wasn't even that long after His faithfulness saying do not make attempts forcing God to act. Do not make attempts forcing God to act. Jesus does not test God by jumping off the roof to be caught by some angels. No, Jesus instead lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He trusts God. We church family, we tend to show a lack of trust. By we, I'm speaking me. When I try to force Him to act, We aren't tempted to amaze people and like jump off buildings, right? But rather what's more relatable is we use the line, if you care for me, God, then this situation will turn out fill in the blank. If you care for me, God, then this is how it's going to go. I'm testing you. Or maybe it's blaming God when suffering occurs, feeling abandoned by him. He will never leave you nor forsake you, church family. If you feel abandoned by him, don't. Because he's always with you, always. And he loves you more than anyone or anything could ever love you. Instead of blaming him for your suffering, instead of feeling that abandonment, instead, maybe the suffering is to be a sign that he's trying to just get us to go a different way. Maybe a better way. The man Jesus... Resists all the temptations. And the last verse of this section states, and when the devil had entered every, uh, ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. This wasn't the end. Satan had not yet been defeated. Jesus conquered temptation. He came out with a win. But Satan will be back for more. But this is a marker. This is a marker of the final step of preparation for Jesus before he begins his ministry. He was tempted so that you and I, when we are tempted, can call him for help. He's with us through it because he experienced it. He can relate. The great theologian Martin Luther, he said it this way in regards to temptation. I love this quote. Well, when Satan comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther, well, he used to live here. But he's moved out. Because now I live here. Satan has no power over you. For when we have Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and followed the Spirit's leading, the Lord God is faithful and He provides. And when it comes to temptation, Jesus' model is best. Know God's Word. Hide it in your hearts. Fill your heart with His Word. Because every word that comes from the Father is that which gives us life. Have trust in God. Jesus did. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for stretching and sharpening. I Thank you for this church family may we all take your word and hide it in our hearts so that when the hardships come, when temptation is what we're faced with, we invite you in alongside us to walk beside us the whole way, to encourage us through your Spirit, to give us power to get through. Father, may I not control my life may i not be the one to care for me and my family but may i surrender it to you god for your care and your love is so much greater thank you for your word and we thank you for this place that we can come together and be sharpened thank you jesus your name amen